Sunday, November 26, 2023. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. This past week, the president low-key celebrated a birthday, turning 81, as more polling shows voters have their doubts about giving our oldest ever president a second term. What started out as chatter has certainly become an increasingly loud conversation, and, and I think a lot of Democrats have expressed those concerns. I'm Jared Halpern. Can high-profile endorsements in Iowa and New Hampshire upend the Republican presidential race just weeks before voting begins? You know, it depends on how popular the politician is. And ironically, the two first uh, states, Iowa and New Hampshire, mm -hmm. have very popular Republican governors. So it will help. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. A few months before the president's birthday, an AP NORC poll noted that most Americans do agree on something. 77% said the president is too old to effectively serve a second term. 89% of Republicans and 69% of Democrats think so. A CNN poll then found in early fall that 56% of Democrats thought he was too old. And this past week, the president joked about it all as he turned 81. I just want you to know it's difficult turning 60. The latest Fox News poll found Biden with a 40% approval rating and higher disapproval among key groups, like a 60% disapproval rating among Hispanic voters. When asked in a hypothetical matchup who voters would choose, 50% said former President Trump and just 46% said Biden. Pollster and Stagwell President Mark Penn told Fox News this past week. It's very hard to get reelected with a 40% job approval. You need at least mm -hmm. 45 uh, that it is about the economy, inflation, crime, immigration. It's about doing things about these problems. And uh, he's got a year left to do it, but it's not about communications. It's really about problems. And as I say, when your age mm -hmm. is twice as good as your job approval, you're in trouble. When asked if there are worries behind the scenes, if there's any alarm over some of these concerns, White House spokeswoman Karine Jean-Pierre said this past week. No, there's no alarm happening behind the scenes. I, I can only speak sure. behind the scenes here. There's no alarm happening behind the scenes, and I'm certainly not going to uh, comment on uh, everybody who has something to say. The president not only joked about his age, though, he recently joked at APEC in San Francisco last week about a man who many talk about as a possible Democratic candidate. I want to talk about Governor Newsom. I want to thank him. He's been one hell of a governor, man. Matter of fact, he could do anything you want. He could have the job I'm looking for. But that was just a joke. The president has said he's running. And despite discussions surrounding his age, we are about two months away from Democrat South Carolina primary. The concerns around Joe Biden's age are something that is expressed by both Republicans and Democrats. Um, and I think it's been an increasing thing we've heard on the Democratic side. And it sort of informs the just general lack of enthusiasm that they feel towards Joe Biden. Carly Cooperman is a Democratic pollster and CEO of Shown Cooperman Research. You know, he's continued to struggle in the polling. His ratings continue to be negative. Um, and it, there's there's nothing that he can do about the fact that he is now 81 years right. old. Um, that being said, you know, I think that the campaign knows that this is a challenge. I think they're going to try to make a concerted effort for him to be out there a bit more because... Um, they, they hear the criticisms, they know the criticisms. And I also think they believe that there's something to be said about being able to show 
steadiness, leadership, and continuing to stay the course. Um, and, you know, they've said this before that, you know, at the end of the day, it's it's not a popularity contest. It's more about being able to beat one other person. And the person who looks like he'll be on the other side is also somebody who is is fairly unpopular. Yeah, we'll get to that that matchup, right? But first, um, White House spokeswoman Karine Jean-Pierre this week seemed like visibly annoyed when she was asked if there was like an alarm going off behind the scenes over his age. Um, I think that's more of a campaign question. But, you know, there are lots of uh, little anonymous reports out there about people behind the scenes at the White House saying, you know, there's this concern. But it's hard to dismiss that chatter, right, when you have people like David Axelrod and Washington Post columnist David Ignatius Mm-hmm. questioning running again like is there is there a real conversation happening or is there not i think the white house is is very interested in in keeping this kind of external conversation to a minimum and you know they're pointing to the legislation that has been passed in the white house the bipartisan legislation that has passed um managing the foreign policy challenges that are happening and, and just trying to pivot towards his experience. But um, I, I don't I don't know in terms of what's happening behind the scenes, but uh, what started out as chatter has certainly become an increasingly loud conversation. And, and I think a lot of Democrats have expressed those concerns. Yeah, I, I do want some of your thoughts about the, the polling, like this NBC poll found uh, with young voters, 18 to 34, that they're favoring Trump over Biden, 46 to 42. There's a high margin of error on that one. And other polls um, seem to show mostly that Biden does top Trump. I think there was another CNN poll done earlier this fall that found a similar dynamic. But either way, the fact that we're even having this conversation about younger voters possibly going for Trump, that it's even this tight, is what? You know, What do you make of it? It's... It's really problematic on the Democratic side. I mean, Democrats need young voters. They need minorities. They're used to having they're used to having young voters. Absolutely. And I do believe that at the end of the day, that some of these young voters who are currently not saying they would vote for Biden will. Um, I still think, you know, when push comes to shove, if their choices next November are between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, that you will see some go back to Biden, even if it's reluctant because of the issues and because of the positions that, um, you know, are dominating. But but that being said, I mean, it, it makes sense to me that somebody is young is looking at um, age as concern and feeling like it makes it harder to relate to that person. Um, and there is some irony in this because Donald Trump is not much younger, but uh, he's been successful at putting on this appearance and presentation of vibrancy uh, in a different way. Mm, yes. Okay. We've established that that we don't know if how, how the White House or how the Biden campaign is handling this discussion about his age, right? So, the, so hypothetically, though, this is hypothetically, how might this happen in a, in a graceful way, in as graceful a way as the president or the White House would want to say, okay, he's not going to run. Um, what does that look like, right? Because the filing deadlines in some of these early states are, are passed, right? Like Nevada's was October 16th. So mm-hmm. it sounds like it's too late for somebody to just jump in. Are we talking about a handoff of delegates at the convention, like in, in, in a very statesmanlike way, giving some big speech about, you know, you know, acknowledging the realities of age? Like, you know, I don't want to like go too too deep in my own imagination, but what is realistically possible in terms of a handoff? Yeah, I think that 
again, this is a conversation that um, people love to keep having. It's a conversation that certainly hurts Biden. You know, the more it feels, I feel like the more that it's talked about, the more it feels realistic just because there's an increasing discussion around it. Um, yet the more time that goes on, the less realistic it is that such right. an event happened because we are missing these dates for to get people on um, the ballots. And, and even even the group no labels, you know, they're they're on that's that would be a third party um, candidacy that they're aiming for. But I, I think it's 13 state ballots that they've managed to get on. It, it is a very, very, very difficult task to get on ballots across all 50 states. Um, and so, sure, I guess there is a very, very unlikely situation where, you know, Joe Biden says, OK, you know, I'm going to step down and, and pass on um, my support instead to so-and-so. And, and um, there's probably a way within the system to to make that happen. But I think that as time goes on, it's increasingly unlikely that something could happen. And I almost think the Biden campaign is intentionally, um, you know, they're they're purposeful about as time goes on, continuing to reiterate that and dismiss these um, claims and suggestions that somebody else is going to emerge. I think logistically, though, like for let's like just for the sake of conversation, let's forget the president's name for a second. Any any president, if the, if the ballot, if getting on the ballot deadlines have passed um, and for whatever reason, you're the you're the likely nominee or or you are the nominee after a certain point of time legally is there a process for this like do you do you have to go through yeah. a legal and logistical I mean, process you know you could end up missing the early state primaries and if you're wildly popular um the deadlines for some of the later states maybe could be made um or there's a situation you know since the delegates um are awarded ultimately when they go to vote, if if the person who has won those delegates is, is saying, no, please actually go and vote for this person instead. I think there's all of these like really extreme hypothetical situations out there, hmm. um, but it's very, very, very challenging and unlikely. Well, and how does the vice president factor in to any of that, right? Like if, isn't the, the the realistic thinking is if God forbid something happens to a president of the United States, then the vice president steps in, right? Like, is that sort of the right. thinking, like, stop talking about it in campaign terms and think about it in terms of just that we already have a system set up for a, a, an aging president? Yes, I mean, that's that's absolutely right. And, you know, I think not as recently, but there had been a lot of talk about Kamala Harris. Um, a while back and you know her her poll numbers her ratings weren't particularly strong either um and i think that is in part for a lot of reasons that were sort of out of her control but some of the dynamics that have just played out um but 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 yes that's absolutely right i mean there is a much younger vice president who in theory um ha if the president were to step down today she would be taking over um and i do think it is important and and noteworthy that there continues to be a much younger um, and healthy vice presidential candidate that, or candidate and current vice president um, that is a partner to Joe Biden. All right, Carly, just a couple more for you here. The, the president did jokingly say at, at APEC in San Francisco that California Governor Gavin Newsom could, uh, what was it, have his job or do his job? Um, I, 
I, I, we've already had the conversation about the what ifs, right? The hypotheticals, but just the constant conversation about Gavin Newsom. I mean, I'm bringing him up now because we keep talking about him and I think I'm feeding into it just by even asking you the question. And, but like, we're about to have this debate between him and Governor DeSantis in Florida on Fox hosted by Sean Hannity. The fact that there's, that that's even happening. Is that of, is that of note? Like that we're talking about somebody who's not running well to your point i think there is some kind of interest in the media to talk about this because it's interesting right (laughs) and um i also think though newsom he very much wants to have a national profile he is building a national profile and at a minimum he certainly is trying to make himself well positioned for 2028 uh so he certainly sees no downside in you know taking on this more public national appearance um you know, I think it's debatable in terms of how he as a national figure would fare. I think he would be well-liked among Democrats. Um, there's a lot of California and more, um, you know, liberal values that are associated with him. And, and that's an entirely different conversation to have. But I, I think right now um, he's doing his best he can to have a, a national profile, but he's not yet crossing the line of... Um, okay challenging Joe Biden. Interesting. Okay. And then one more for you. I I know it's we're still nearly a year out from the election, but is the Biden campaign visibly robust at this point? I mean, it, former President Trump said the entire Biden campaign is just watching him Trump in courtrooms throughout the year. But is the Biden campaign just like laying low? I think the Biden campaign is very much up and running behind the scenes. I think there is in part a calculated effort that believes that the more energy Trump takes up, the better it is for them because, uh, you know, it used to be that they felt like it was unfair how much attention was focused on Trump, but now they saw that Trump has been able to unify um, a Democratic Party unlike anyone else has been able to, or anything else has been able to do. Hmm. Um, So I think the Democrats think it's to, and Biden thinks it's to his benefit, to let Trump suck a lot of energy out. Um, and I also think that they're, the, the benefit of incumbency and looking presidential and being lead, and, and being a leader, um, you know, it's one of the things they're leading into in terms of, of a steady, stable leadership portrayal in, in contrast to, you know, a sometimes more erratic and frenetic Donald Trump. Um, but I, I think that as, as we go into next year, there's going to be a step up from the president in terms of looking to be more directly campaigning. Uh, I don't, I, I think that at this point to do that right now is um, I'm, I'm not sure how much it helps to be honest. You know, it's the same way we're kind of looking at the polls right now being like, okay, this is a snapshot of what's going on right now, but there's so much between now and a year from now. Um, so much time to pass that uh, I think they're still just getting started in terms of the more outward looking stuff that we're seeing. Okay. Yeah, it's still it's still early. Well, um, Carly Cooperman, CEO of Sean Cooperman Research, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Influential Iowans are looking to reshape the state of the Republican presidential race. I'm thrilled to throw my personal endorsement and support. Uh, behind Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida. 
That was the announcement of Bob Vanderplatz, the president and CEO of The Family Leader, a conservative Christian organization in Iowa. Vanderplatz has a track record of picking winners in his home state. And this past week on Special Report with Brett Baer, explained why he's endorsing DeSantis. We need to find somebody who can win in 2024. And what we saw in 2022, the supposedly red wave really only happened in Florida and in Iowa. Uh, Governor DeSantis took a reliable toss-up state in Florida and made it complete red, one by 20 points, one in demographics that we haven't won in. Vanderplatt's endorsement followed another high-profile pickup for DeSantis, winning the coveted endorsement of Iowa's governor, Kim Reynolds. If you like what we've done in Iowa, then you're going to love what Ron DeSantis will do for this country. The Iowa caucus is January 15th, less than two months away. Public polling shows endorsements aside, DeSantis is well behind former President Trump. The average of polls at Real Clear Politics shows the former president at 47 percent, nearly 30 points ahead of DeSantis and former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley. So the question becomes, is Iowa out of reach for anyone other than Trump? Well, we've got to be careful. Uh, we're talking caucuses and primaries. Uh, Carl Rove is a Fox News political contributor and was a top strategist for President George W. Bush's campaigns in 2000 and 2004. Uh, in 2007, for example, at this point, uh, Hillary Clinton was a solid lead in uh, Iowa, New Hampshire, and went on to lose uh, Iowa to Barack Obama. Uh, George W. Bush was uh, the leader in Iowa and the leader in New Hampshire. And while he won Iowa, he got walloped by 19 points in, uh, in New Hampshire. I think the best example, though, is th to show you the dynamic that could happen uh, is 1984 on the Democratic side. The, um, everybody knew Walter Mondale was going to be the Democratic nominee. Uh, he was in the 50s in the polling, national polling. Nobody was close. Vice President to Jimmy Carter, respected member of the Senate. Last poll before Iowa, before the Iowa caucuses, just a matter of days beforehand, it was 49% for Mondale. And it's the Seltzer poll, the Iowa poll that we all mm -hmm. revere. 49% uh, for Mondale. In second place with 13 points each were tied Jesse Jackson of Chicago and Senator John Glenn of Ohio. Fourth place was Reuben Askew, former governor of Florida at five points. And back there for tied for fifth and sixth were two senators, Alan Cranston of California running on the nuclear freeze and Gary Hart of Colorado running as a new Democrat. And on caucus night, Mondale nailed it, 48.9%. But there was a surprise. Gary Hart comes in second with 16% of the vote. And for the next eight days, we're all talking about the surprise second place finish of the bright young new Democrat from Colorado, Gary Hart. And on, uh, in, on the day of the New Hampshire primary, New Hampshire, as it likes to do, upset the conventional wisdom and the front runner. And Gary Hart won New Hampshire. Now, Mondale begins to fight back. They have a televised debate in March. And in it, he famously says, every time you speak, I'm reminded of that commercial, where's the beef, referring to a Wendy's <laughs> hamburger commercial. You know, what is a new Democrat, in essence, was what he was asking. And Mondale went on to win the nomination. But it took until June 5th to, to clinch the nomination. Uh, Hart won 27 contests. 
And on June 5th, he won California, New Mexico, and South Dakota. But Mondale won New Jersey and West Virginia, and by doing so, clinched the Democratic nomination with 21 delegates to spare out of nearly 4,000. In other wow. words, if Walter Mondale had not had that great quip, and if and if Gary Hart had not had had a better answer to what a new Democrat was, he could have won the nomination. Now, it took eight years for a new Democrat, a governor from Arkansas, to explain what a new Democrat was. But, you know, the funny things like that happen. You know, Bush wins Iowa in 2000, loses New Hampshire eight days later by 19 points in an unexpectedly large defeat, unexpected defeat and unexpectedly large. And fortunately, has 19 days to fight back before the South Carolina primary. And, jo and John McCain makes several critical mistakes in the, in the in the South Carolina primary. And Bush gets back on, on his feet and goes on to secure the nomination. But nobody should count. You know, look, Herman Cain was leading at this point, you know, at one point uh, mm -hmm. in 2011. Uh, uh, ben Carson was leading. I mean, funny things happen in these early contests. And I think that the Trump campaign understands that they, in in, in, in uh, early September, I think it was, they said they were going to be back to um, Iowa like six times between September and October. I think they've been back 10 times. And I think <laughs> the reason is because they realize they cannot let this get away from them and they could uh, get away from them in that state. He's flat. The Iowa, caucus, the Iowa poll in August had him at 42 and in October, it had him at 43. Uh, Ron DeSantis dropped from 19 to 16. Nikki Haley rose from 6 to 16. And of Donald Trump's 43 percent, 29 of the 43 said, my mind is made up for Trump. But 14 of the 23 said, um, I'm open to voting for somebody else. And we see that happen a lot. Caucuses are a different kind of animal, to your point, yeah, anyway. Yeah. They, yeah. they can and, surprise and, and us. And New I still Hampshire don't fully for, understand them. I know you go from corner to corner and there's some food, you know, given out, but they're hard to win. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And it's all in public. You literally get to see who yeah. your who your neighbors are. It's not like the sanctity of the polls where you go in and vote in private. It's all out there in public in some gymnasium or, yes. you know, auditorium or senior citizen center or livestock barn. I mean, it's it is America. The middle I've heard, of it. I've heard sometimes sidewalks, uh, driveways are, are shoveled and lawns are mowed. And there's some wrangling <laughs> that can happen. Let me ask, because it's also the season of, of endorsements. And I know uh, Iowa's governor uh, made that endorsement of, of Ron DeSantis. Uh, she had kind of stayed neutral and was sort of uh, sort of the, the ambassador to the state, letting candidates kind of go around and, and kind of she was their guide. Uh, you know, when a governor, especially a fairly popular governor, at least nationally, endorses somebody, does that have an impact at this stage in a race? Or do most people kind of poo-poo that and say, yeah, I don't really care what, what politicians tell me? Well, uh, it, you know, it depends on how popular the politician is. And ironically, the two first uh, states, Iowa, New Hampshire, mm -hmm. have very popular Republican governors. So it will help. Better to have them with you than to have them in you. <laughs> Yeah. I will say that that Governor uh, Governor Reynolds is very popular, and also people anticipated this because early on, while she was the ambassador, as you say, inviting everybody, accompanying everybody, putting her arm around them to show that she was comfortable and they were comfortable, uh, she nonetheless had behind the scenes been helping DeSantis, and they, you know, they came in as governors together. They, you know, the first Republican Governors Association meeting, they were the freshman, you know, governor sitting in the back of the room you know, shooting spitwads at their senior governors. But uh, so there, you, there's a friendship there you can you can expect. But but look, 
you're right. At the end of the day, it comes down to, you know, less the, the, the endorsement gives you a chance to showcase some of your strengths. It's how the governor, what the governor says when he or she endorses that draws attention to things that you want to have attention drawn to. The name alone is not enough. It's the explanation that matters. And so we'll see how that plays out and how voters, I guess, respond. But it shows, again, that, that there can be dynamics in this race, even just a couple of weeks out. Yeah. Well, remember what, what vaults Barack Obama to the top of the heap in Iowa is they used to have a big dinner at the Jefferson Jackson mm -hmm. Day dinner, which they showcased all the candidates. They had to change it because, as you know, we all know Jefferson was a, uh, a slaveholder and Jackson was a populist. And they may have been the third and seventh presidents of the United States, but we cannot have their name associated with the Democratic Party anymore. So anyway, foolishness on their part. But they, at the Jefferson Jackson Day dinner, Obama, who'd been, you know, sort of, you know, had a great announcement and then sort of, you know, disappeared from sight effectively, got up and gave an incredible speech that just energized the crowd. And a lot of people who went into that dinner wondering who they were going to be for or believing that they were weakly linked to somebody, including Hillary Clinton, went out of there that night blown away by Barack Obama. And not too, you know, not too many weeks after that, he won he won the Iowa caucuses in an upset. Let me ask you about the polls on the uh, general election side. Um, obviously, we have seen now uh, several uh, polls that show a lot of vulnerability for, for President Biden. I am curious, as you were kind of looking at the reelection uh, back in, in 2003, a year out for, from the election, were you paying attention to polls that far out from, from the general election date? Oh, yeah, uh, we were. Uh, I mean, they're not determinative because you can bend the arc of, of it. And but you've got to have some underlying strength. I mean, people might disagree with something Bush did or question it or not be certain about it. But they knew that he was a strong and effective leader, that he was young, energetic, that he had it to be the president of the United States. He had the capacity. So when we when we, we got into the battle with Kerry, we had some underlying strengths. And the question we asked the voters was, was in, in a time of challenge for the country, uh, do you want to change horses in the middle of the stream? We're, we're at war. And do you want a guy who uh, is a strong, effective leader who will give the military everything they need or a guy who said, actually, I voted for the $87 billion in war funding before I voted against it. So there was an underlying strength. Similarly, Barack Obama had underlying strength when he had bad numbers in 2011 and went and, you know, basically attacked uh, Mitt Romney as a heartless plutocrat who didn't care about most ordinary Americans. He had underlying strengths. The problem for Joe Biden is his underlying strengths are gone. Three quarters of the American people think he's too old, including 69% of Democrats. And two thirds of Americans think he lacks the stamina and mental acuity to be effective as president. And those things are not gonna get better for him. They're gonna get worse. You know, his age obviously is not gonna change. You can't change that. So is this a question of trying to change how people view it? Because, you know, one thing that I hear from voters a lot, and you know, you'll point out that, well, you know, Donald Trump's only four years younger than, than President Biden, but they'll say, yeah, but it doesn't seem that way. Is this sort of a question of the way that, that the president now sort of presents himself in, in the public, maybe through these large rallies or other types of events? Is that kind of what the White House is going to have to do? Well, they may try that. But look, it's not how he presents himself. It's how he is. I mean, if you look at Donald Trump, who is, you know, what, 77, so he's three 77, years, yeah. 77, about ready to turn 78 uh, next year, uh, you know, he seems more energetic than, than Joe Biden does because he is. He seems more with it than Joe Biden. 
because he is. Now he he mangles it. He he's recently taken to saying that he beat Barack Obama when he when it was that he beat Hillary Clinton and lost to Joe Biden. But but nonetheless, he he is holding himself. Equating uh, himself in a better fashion than Joe Biden is. Look, when you run for president, it's it's not like you can portray yourself. You mm -hmm. are yourself. You can maybe put your best side forward, but you are who you are. And what we see in Joe Biden is what what he is, which is a guy who's 81 and having difficulty remembering things and doesn't know sometimes where he is and can't put together two sentences and has a weird story that he always tells about his parents giving him some childhood advice and and then you know sort of wandering off in the middle of his impromptu remarks to go someplace that he wanted to go that's the reality of him and you know they may try and limit the opportunities for that but there's a there's a there's a there's a you know a price for that which is we'll still see him doing those things we just won't see him as frequently but we'll still when when we do see them we'll know that that's him does the dynamics of how the polls look, right, where we're, we kind of have these hypothetical matchups right now between uh, Biden and Trump, when the Republican nomination shakes itself out, you know, in a determinative way, does that change, in your view, kind of how polling is done or, or how voters sometimes respond to questions in polls? In other words, when it's no longer kind of a hypothetical, but, but the actual dynamic, the actual reality in front of them? Yeah. It, yes, they do change. And, and that's where the conduct of the candidates and the events that that uh, form the backdrop for their activities and uh, the tempo of things and mistakes or successes, those all have an, an effect. And, and yes, so the polls will change. We don't know exactly how they'll change. These two men are well known and they're not right. well liked. This is a campaign between two, two. If it ends up being Biden versus Trump, those are the two people that the American people don't want to have run against each other. And people will end up voting more against the person they dislike than the person that they like, because they don't like really either one of them. Each has got their own hardcore uh, following, you know, but uh, maybe, you know, 25 30% of the electorate, but the 40% of the electorate in between or the 45% of the electorate in between is saying a pox on both your houses and it's going to be driven to vote by their fears of what the other guy would do and less about what the, you know, the, the, the positive and optimistic vision that, that their candidate is able to project because neither one of those guys can project that good of positive and optimistic and uplifting message. Let me finish with this. Um, the uh, Commission on Presidential Debates announced uh, this week their plan moving forward, three presidential debates, one vice presidential debate. That's been the way it has been for for a couple of decades now. Both parties have sort of expressed their frustration uh, with the uh, the commission. Do you think those debates go forward? Well, I hope they do. I'm, I'm one of those people that has a frustration with the debate commission. Try dealing with them twice as we did in 2004, <laughs> and you'll, you'll not walk away with a good taste in your mouth. But I do think it's important that we have these debates. And uh, uh, I think that if somebody says, I'm not going to debate, uh, they better have a darn good reason that's convincing. Otherwise, they're going to suffer with the American people. And, I'm, and, and, and the fact that one of them is at my alma mater, the University of Utah, and one of them is going to be the first debate held in Texas at Texas State University. Mm -hmm. Chancellor is a friend of mine, Brian McCall, and it's just down the road here from Austin. That doesn't have anything to do with my encouragement that we have debates. I just think it's important that we have this kind of a stage for, for the American people. I wish, however, that we go back to what we did in the beginning of the debates back in the 60s and 70s, and that is often there was no audience. Mm 
I think one mm -hmm. of the things that was problematic in these primaries has been that there have been audiences. And so they have been, you know, players in the debate by cheering and screaming and yelling and plotting when they should be, you know, stone cold quiet. Now, in most presidential debates, they are stone cold quiet. But, you know, people are playing to those audiences and the audiences do have an effect. Now, I grant you that sometimes it, they favor the guys and gals that I like. I mean, I remember the audience reaction in the in uh, in the debate in Boston, where Al Gore came up and tried to sort of, you know, physically, you know, menace George W. Bush, who turned to him and gave him that famous wink and a nod. I remember that. The crowd, the crowd clearly was taken aback by Gore trying to be a bully, and they loved Bush's response. And that helped color the, 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 the press coverage of it, because the press saw the response by this, you know, if you will, mini audience, you know, this audience that was a mini poll was like that, you know, Gore had made a big mistake and Bush had handled it well. Well, hopefully, Carl, we uh, we get together down there in San Marcos. It's a fun, fun city. And hopefully uh, the rest of the press corps gets to experience it as well next now, year. Are you leaving out Salt Lake City or Petersburg, Virginia? Well, I'm, because you know, I'm a Texan, so I'm going to be partial to, there to San go. Marcos. There we go. Good. 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 <laughs> I'm excited yeah, for all of them, though. Mark, I we, hope we, they cost into cause. San Marcos. You, well, you know, right. any chance for me to get get some good barbecue, I'm I'm all for. So. Excellent, excellent. All right, Carl. Thanks so much. All the best. That will do it for this edition of the Fox News Rundown from Washington podcast. Next week, the temporary truce between Israel and Hamas to free dozens of hostages expires. We'll look at the latest in the war and how the Biden administration is trying to keep the peace. And Congress returns with aid for Israel, Ukraine, the southern border, and more still unresolved. Until then, thanks for listening. I'm Jared Halpern from Washington. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com.